The Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started for and by the members of America's service community. Think of the service community as everyone connected to the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, and the issues that affect them. Second Mission Foundation assists veterans of America's service community in the search for their second mission by providing the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. One of their most glowing examples was the recent publication of The Hill, a memoir of war in Helmand Province by Aaron Kirk. The Hill was an account of the tragedy of war, the deeply personal experience of combat, and the raw, unfiltered brutality of lower enlisted Marine Corps life. And I thank Second Mission for their co-sponsorship of this episode of Profiles in Havoc. I will get to the other sponsor at the end of the episode. So my guest this week was Holly McKay, and I've had my eye on Holly's work for some time. You know, the last time we, as America, failed to pay attention to Afghanistan didn't really work out that well for us. So now, when we are repeating ourselves and willfully making ourselves blind to what's going on in Afghanistan, Holly is one of the few, in fact, she's the only one I know of, there may be others, but I I don't think anyone is doing anywhere near the level of work that she is doing in Afghanistan to bring the stories of the new normal in Afghanistan to certainly a Western audience, if not just a wider audience. Um, Holly's work has, in the subject she covers, spans um, you know, a huge range. She's got an immense canvas to work on because, as I said, since nobody's really following Afghanistan, she captures human interest stories. She captures, you know, uh, uh, the sleaze and, you know, the drugs and, and you know, some of the, the societal problems that they're seeing in Afghanistan and the, the new Taliban government is trying to figure out and figure out how to deal with. Um, and, of course, the geopolitical implications of Afghanistan, as well as doing a bit of a forensic uh, look at how Afghanistan collapsed and how it collapsed so quickly. So Holly um, does this not just because she's smart or has you know amazing powers of intuition. She was there in Mazar-Sharif when Afghanistan fell. She was actually escorted to the Uzbek border by the Taliban. Uh and then she returned to the country about two weeks later, and she traveled throughout Afghanistan in just about every province to capture as many of the stories and provide as much context and as much of a window into what was going on in Afghanistan as she could. So her work has been truly the embodiment of the first draft of history uh, that journalism aspires to uh, to accomplish, and she is certainly doing that. So I... As you guys know, I, Afghanistan has a special place in my heart, and the issues there have been um, very personal for me. So I couldn't have been more excited to sit down and talk with Holly. And uh, I, it was a great conversation. I won't give you any spoilers. We cover a wide swath of subjects. Um, she 
is uh, I was completely unsurprised that she had a lot of um, she has a lot on her plate, especially coming up, and she's traveling. So um, we didn't have all the time I would have loved to have had to bend her ear and, and get her opinions on a lot of a lot more things and had a lot more follow up questions. But she certainly we dove in very deep to the subjects we were able to cover, and I was incredibly grateful to uh, get her perspective on them. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. I know I certainly did. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My guest this week again is Holly McKay, and this is Profiles in Havoc. We're live. Hey, Holly. Hi. Okay, so this is, let me just get all my priors and all my expectations laid out up front. I am super, super excited to talk to you for multiple reasons. And I, I went back and forth as to whether or not I wanted to even mention this to you. And I think I'm going to just because I think, um, I don't know, maybe it'll tell you a bit more about where I'm coming from with this, but you and I have a connection that uh, you may not be aware of. Okay. Um, that first brought you really to my attention and then made me follow you religiously when you were traveling through Afghanistan. So uh, a mutual friend of ours, and we could talk about it offline after, but a mutual friend of ours reached out to me in mid-August to say that you were stuck in Mazar Sharif. And he knew that I was uh, working with some folks um, on Afghan-related issues and to see if I could help get you out. And, uh, so I looked you up, I saw what was going on and then he would get, and I don't know if I, obviously I never communicated directly with you. I don't know if he did. I don't know how well, when I talk to you about who it is after you might be like, oh yeah, I met that guy once. I don't know. But the way he described it was like you and he were in comms and I was distraught that I could do fuck all to help you. And, um, We were pulling every lever that we knew how, and then he hit me up and said, hey, so she got out, and apparently the Taliban came and knocked on her door, picked her up, and drove her to the Uzbek border. And I was like, my jaw was on the ground, and I was stunned, and I was glad that state had worked whatever they worked to pull that off, but um, I was blown away that that's that looked like the new normal as far as getting people out with some degree of fidelity. And then to see you go back into the country two weeks later, I remember uh, looking up at the hotel room I was in and screaming and going, Oh my God, what is she doing? And Uh, uh, you and my family. I don't, I don't doubt it. So anyway, I I say all that to say like, um, so I Uh, kind of felt emotionally, Invested. So it's, it's a little weird for me because I'm like, I, I, I was like, I don't even know if I should mention this, but it, it meant something to me um, to not just see that you were safe, but you were like thriving over those three months um, journalistically. And that was just and it was and suddenly I like my sympathy and all that just went aside. And I was like, what the hell? Like she's finding out stuff that no one is tracking and getting a window into the country that you're just not hearing anywhere else. So to have you on means a ton to me, and um, and and I I just can't wait to ask you a ton of questions, 
about everything you were up to, but I'll let you react to that. That's just kind of a bull. Oh, thank you. I, I really, I really appreciate that support. Um, yeah. I had a lot of people sort of reaching out and, and um, yeah, it's, it's nice to know that, that people out there sort of care when you're, you're in that black hole and you don't know quite what you're doing or, or what will happen. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to know that that people are following and, and care. And also, Again, to your point, highlighting the sort of the situation of really, you know, right from the beginning, um, I said to my photographer, Jake, who I was with, I think the only way we're going to, to manage this is to talk to the Taliban. Um, and to the, to the credit of you know, the State Department and the other people that I was speaking with, um, when I brought that up pretty early, they didn't balk at it. They sort of said, well, that's a possibility. So um, I, you know, I, they, they took a risk with that and it did certainly, um, it worked out, worked out for me. How much was the Taliban the other to you when you first met them? Had you interviewed Taliban before? Were, were you somewhat familiar with how they operated? I was familiar with the Taliban and I knew people that had sort of defected from in and out of the Taliban. Um, I'd interviewed a lot of Taliban in prisons before in Afghanistan. Um, so I, I was a little bit you know, familiar with them in that sense, but I really, like everybody else, only knew them as an insurgency. I didn't know them as this sort of quasi-government that they were trying to be at that point. And really that's what it was. Overnight, you saw a complete shift. You saw this complete shift from being that insurgency into to this group that was trying to be a government. So um, my, you know, my memories of them were of suicide bombings, were of kidnappings, were of um, sort of the brutality that they'd waged, this war that they'd waged in Afghanistan for 20 years. And so to sort of see them in a, in a strangely different, almost diplomatic kind of light, I mean, it was incredibly bizarre and still bizarre. You know, even though I spent several months in Afghanistan afterwards, it was still this bizarre sight to have the Taliban as my neighbours, to step outside my house that I was living in Kabul and, and there was just sort of Taliban on the street and interacting with them on a, a daily basis, um, them jumping into my car unwillingly, mind you, um, you know, seeing them at every checkpoint. And it's still a bizarre thing. And, and I plan to go back to Afghanistan in a couple of months. And it's not something I think that I will ever really kind of get used to um, I don't think you sort of can get used to that site uh, after really covering this for so long and in such a different capacity. How many months had you been in Afghanistan or years, as the case might be, prior to being there for your three-month jaunt? Um, I'd been there previously, uh, 2014 and 2017. So How long uh, and that was for each? several months at a okay. time. Okay. Yeah. So, you, so, I mean, you had seen kind of the evolution of the post-surge in Afghanistan and kind of what was the difference between 2014 and 2017 for you? What did you notice as major differences? Um, it, it became a lot more dangerous, honestly. And I remember in 2017, just, it was, it was suicide bombings daily. I remember, you know, staying, you couldn't travel anywhere. It was really hard. I think the only really road trips we were able to do were to Pangaea, and that was kind of it. It was hard to, to be on the road um, it was it was a daunting task to be driving around in the streets and, and there was just so much sort of heightened security at that point. Um, I remember just almost every day waking up and looking at my balcony and you just see smoke plumes in the air because there was a suicide bombing or a car bombing and it just felt like an incredibly dangerous place to be. And then you had the dash and other things on top of it. Um, 
And ironically, my last few months there, I wouldn't say it was safe because right. mostly of the ISIS threat, but in a way it kind of felt much safer and we sure. were able to travel to almost every province. And it just, that to me was, was sort of mind blowing. I thought, I remember sort of that first major road trip we did, which was from Kabul to Kandahar. So you're going through uh, Ghazni, you're going through Zabul, um, you're going through Loga. And I just remember thinking, my goodness, two weeks ago, this was unthinkable. And now, you know, here we are just traveling, you know, on this 12 hour journey along a road that, that I just, I never thought that I would really be able to, to travel on and and coming back into the country. um, I had to cross back, from Uzbekistan into to Heritan and literally just walk over the bridge and then drive from Heritan down to Kabul. And it was just bizarre. And, and it's still bizarre when I kind of think about it because I just, I never thought I would be able to do that. Well, I, I got to say, I was seething with jealousy uh, watching all that just to see what you were seeing, the places you were able to go that had been denied for so long that and, and seeing sites. And and certainly, um, just forget about the politics, forget about the war, just culturally what you were able to see and observe. I don't think anyone's had that placement and access since probably the 70s. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, it just was I mean, your pictures and the way you described it. Uh, it was it was what National Geographic, like, I think, existed to do. And nobody can do that. You were the only one out there doing that. Um, before I leave your history with Afghanistan. I just want to ask in 2014, where did you go? Did you have, were you around the country more or were you still Not really, really just, um, okay. it was a very quick trip and it was really just Kabul centric. And I was okay. just trying to get an understanding of really just what people were doing on the ground, essentially. Um, so my focus was really just talking to Afghans and, and really kind of getting an understanding because at that point, Mostly my my work between 2014 and 2018 was all Iraq. So I was in Iraq and Syria during that sure. time. And, and that was my focus because of, of ISIS in those regions. So the Afghanistan was more just trying to understand and, and really get um, it, an understanding for sort of the cultural dynamics, I think, um, the Tajiks, the Pashtuns, the Hazaras, trying to understand how all these pieces kind of fit together. Um, and so... I really just wanted to talk to people on the ground. That was my my sort of objective to just get a, a richer understanding of the region. Um, is is Afghanistan the most complicated country you've ever covered? When you're in it, I always say yes, but then I always think I say the same thing when I'm right. in Iraq or Yemen. Right. Or sure. I do. You know, I have a special love for Afghanistan, and I think for those of us who've been there, it's it's. We have a sort of a joke. It's not a very politically correct joke, but it's the abusive husband that you just can't get away from. Um, it's like you you love it, but you hate it, but you try to leave and it just draws you back. And and there's just something about Afghanistan, I think, that you just fall in love with. And, I, and I've been to so many places in the world and I really just say there is nothing like Afghanistan in my mind. And it is a complicated place because you don't you you have the dynamics of of all the regional countries. You know, it borders yeah. so many different countries: China, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Pakistan. Like it, there are many, and then you have the element of the Tajiks and the Pashtuns, um, which you know, in a way, is is their kind of war as opposed to in Iraq where you've got the Sunni and the Shia. You don't have a huge Shia population, just the Hazaras really in Afghanistan. So it is a Sunni dominant country, 
but you just have so many different sort of conflicting views and changing sides. And, and, and I really, what I wanted to do with this trip was go to the provinces because that was something I couldn't do a lot of before. And I felt very guilty about that because I think so much of, of journalism, it comes from the lens of Kabul or it comes from the lens yeah. of these cities. Yeah. And the way that villages function is so vastly different yeah. to cities. And, and when people say, you know, for women, especially the, who are, you know, subjugated under the Taliban, and it's a very, very difficult time for them right now. Um, you see the impact of that a lot more in Kabul, where women are used to going to school and going to right. workplaces and, and sort of having a lot of freedoms. But in the villages, in some ways, the women's lives may actually get better. And I say that because they're usually under very sort of very conservative uh, restrictions anyway. A lot of the time they weren't really going to school past the age of 12. They weren't necessarily working. They were very much in the home unless they were doing sort of work in the fields, which is, is common. But their lives will get better in the sense that suddenly they have more safety than they had before. Suddenly there sure. isn't this massive combat that's happening. And I, I think it's really important to reflect those voices just as much as it's important to reflect the voices coming from a place like Kabul. Yeah. I, I heard you say that before I listened to the Jocko podcast that you did with him, And um, I was sorry I did because then it, it spoiled a bunch of surprises that I really wanted to find out for myself. But, uh, but when you said that, that resonated with me, um, I guess, and, and this is not to, to, poke holes in that. Um, there's certainly, I, I was thinking of some folks I knew that were in the rural areas, um, you know, decently far outside of Kabul. So Kapisa, um, you know, Lachman, you know, places like that, um, that actually had made the effort to send their daughters to Kabul mm. to get educated. And um, knowing that they, they were like, you know, we can't get educated here. And now thinking, okay, well now those girls are, mm. you know, I don't know, in limbo or, or back there and, you know, tilling the soil now. Um, and it, so it certainly is one of those situations where, and it, correct me if you think this differently or if you see this differently, but it seems to me this is um, the relative piece of servitude or of enslavement, you know, that a lot of times we go peace, peace, but, you know, death is peaceful. Surrender can mm -hmm. be peaceful. You know, it doesn't mean it's right. It just, you know, some, we kind of have a binary where we think peace is automatically good and war is automatically bad. But, you know, this is one of those cases where now you just get to see tyranny fully executed and, yeah. and what that looks like. Um, did you feel that when you were going around, did you feel any sense of American privilege? Like, oh, I get to do this, but Afghans don't, or, you know, what was it? What was that like for you? Absolutely. I think that was certainly, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of Pashtun Wali. And really that's what, that's what kept me safe under the Taliban. Mm. And, and I was a guest in their country. You know, I was there with permission. I was there legally. Um, I had a valid visa. And so I, you know, they treated me sort of as a, as a guest in their country. And I certainly think that, um, that there is a degree of privilege in that. Um, not to say that I don't think you know, Afghan women can, um, I think that a lot of the times, you know, they, they didn't necessarily know that I was a foreigner. I think 
especially in the beginning, they sort of had yep. this rule that if they saw a woman in the car, that they were not going to stop the car. So I was, you know, quote unquote, the passport. So they would sort of stick me in the front because they knew that when we uh, when we got to a checkpoint, they would see me and just say, go, go, go. And I usually would just sort of stare them off kind of thing. Um, but, you know, was, so that, was that a sop to the West? Is that why they were doing that? Was that their sense of making nice with the West to do that? Uh, I think to some degree, um, to some degree, they were trying to trying to show that they were being somehow misrepresented. So they thought that enabling the media to to come in, that they would, um, you know, people would suddenly sort of see them as in a different light than mm. they than they had been portrayed in the past. But mind you, a lot of the Taliban will say we were misrepresented in the nineties too, and that's very hard um, for us to kind of wrap our head around, get, considering what the country was like in the nineties. Um, so I think that they sort of thought that the media was was going to come in, and they wanted to show um, their ability to to kind of hold a country, and so they were quite free with that, and uh, to a degree, still quite free with that. So it, that may change, um, you know, at any time soon. But I think with the in terms of the women issue. At the first, they were just, I think a lot of them had never seen a woman before, really. They really hadn't seen a woman outside their mothers or grandmothers or, you know, daughter if they had one. So this sort of idea of a woman um, in the street or working or sort of being out was just was incredibly new to them. And in the beginning, they didn't look at me. They didn't acknowledge me. They didn't greet me. They didn't, um, I, I didn't exist. But I did notice that that was something that changed over the course of those few months is that by the end of it, um, I think they'd just sort of grown accustomed to to enough sort of journalists and other people coming in that they realised that that was something that they had to um, to change somewhat in that just a simple making eye contact or a simple, you know, acknowledging my presence kind of thing. Um, so that was one thing I did. I did notice changed a lot. Um, I know that Joan Didion uh I don't know if she said this or if it was said about her, but she, but whatever it was, the thought was because she was so small and unimposing, she just could get people to open up in ways that they never would have. And she was, you know, almost mousy to a point. People just wanted to flaunt their stories in front of her. Did you find that for you? (laughs) I mean, being a small Western woman walking around Afghanistan, or did you find, no, I I, got to, you know, I I have to use different techniques. People aren't just going to open up because I'm here or they, or they still see me as a bit enough of a threat that they are guarded with me? Um, I think you kind of have to read any situation. But one thing I really found when I was interviewing Taliban was one of the first things that I did was ask them about their story. How did you join the Taliban? Mm. Where did you grow up? You know, and suddenly that was sort of the key to them opening up. You saw their face light up. It's like, oh, my goodness, here's my opportunity to talk about myself. And that's one thing you'll notice really in any country, any everybody wants to talk about themselves, you know, and this was their first time that they got to to tell their story. So I usually um, I usually try to sort of open with that and find out. And and I was genuinely curious in in their upbringing and, and what compelled them to join the Taliban. And I wanted to understand you know, the, the Taliban, the, these foot soldiers were not getting paid for 20 years. Right. So it wasn't like a group like ISIS where they had these alluring salaries and that was the reason that they sort of joined. These people were fighting for nothing. Um, and so I kind of wanted to understand, well, A, how they survived and B, the motivation in joining when it was, clearly wasn't about money for them. It was about something higher. And, and at the end of the day, it was that sort of um, their ideology and their will to, I guess, play the long game and, and keep fighting that 
you got them the the presidential palace back. It's funny. I mean, again, I'm I'm so I'm thinking um, through some of my experiences over there and some people that I knew, and I knew that there was, I, I know that often it was, um, at least in my experience, it was seemed to be peer pressure because mm-hmm. it's the only game in town. So if you're mm-hmm. from the rural area, it's um, you could argue it's survival, but also there's the ego boost of well, if I can rise high, this is this is my varsity football team in high school. So if I can do this, then there, there's the opportunity. And as a result, they would forego pay and forego all the opportunities and what have you. Um, but I remember several folks I knew would say, look, I, I'm from this area. If I'm not Taliban, I'm dead. I mean, they're, they're going to think I'm a spy or they're going to think I'm this or that. I, I This is what I have to be. Did you ever come across any sense of that? Was there ever, is that ever something that you could, that you would hear communicated or discern somehow? Yeah, I think that, I mean, especially in the rural areas where there is such little opportunity aside from continuing to, to work on the farm. And I usually found that there was there was a couple of different tracks. So one of them was that um, they would go to the madrasa. So they would essentially maybe go to school till they were nine or 11, and then usually go to a madrasa. And then around the age of about 15, the natural progression was to then go into the Taliban because there really wasn't any other opportunities. Sure. And what I found in terms of, of how they kind of survived was that you know, you're looking at families that have four, five, six sons. Um, and so one or two of those sons would essentially join the Taliban and the rest of the family would then kind of be their sponsor and support them and provide Mm. the family with food and things. Um, Or there would be sort of a commander in that village who would sponsor the family and sponsor those particular Taliban. So it was almost expected that that not every son necessarily had to join the Taliban, but, but, uh, you know, at least they had to have some kind of representatives. And then the other track that I found was especially common was people that had been rolled up into Bagram or Pulichakri or, or gone to one of the prisons. And, and I'll give you an example. So Kari Hosti, who is the spokesperson for Siraj Hakani at the Ministry of, of Interior, when I asked him his story, he said that, you know, he was just a, a student essentially of, of religion and, and was studying and he was arrested and sort of accused of being a Taliban and he he swears he wasn't a Taliban at that point. He was just very devoted to his studies and spent a couple of years in Bagram. And then because of what he sort of experienced in Bagram and he felt that it was very unjust, he felt that he, he wasn't fairly represented in court. He felt that you know, he claimed to be you know, tortured or, or mistreated. And so when he got out, the first thing he did was go and join the Taliban because he wanted to, to fight against that. So that was something else that I, I found to be especially common as well was people that felt that that they weren't treated adequately or were arrested for something they didn't do um, or, you know, perhaps they'd gone through a checkpoint. And, and one of the other Taliban's, I remember he said he went through a checkpoint and because he had a beard, one of the Afghan soldiers, you know, burned his beard or something. And so that sort of angered him to the point of, of needing to go and join it. So I think, yeah, you sort of had a multitude of different reasons. Sure. Um, who did he blame for that? Did he blame the other Afghans for diming him out was it a tribal thing where he's like those freaking tajiks stop me and they didn't like my beard or did he blame nato the u.s did he attribute any blame i think they essentially i mean at the end of the day i think a lot of them the buck stops with afghans themselves yeah. um so they were very angry you know at the at this idea of, of other afghans treating 
Afghans like this, but at the same time, they looked at the Afghan soldiers being corrupted by the United States and corrupted by money and corrupted by all these these other things. So I think it was sort of a shared blame, both Afghans and and the U.S. So one thing I wanted to dive into a little more, um, you talked about it briefly before, Afghanistan, I think you're right, is one of those countries, and there's not, I think, a ton of them, but it's one of those countries that is highly leveraged by all of its neighbors, and its future is almost determined by its neighbors and by who I think ends up getting most of the power share and who can pull the of strings. Uh, and again, if you disagree, if I'm putting words in your mouth, mm-hmm. by all means, correct me. But um, that's certainly been my um, assessment of it. Did you see more foreigners in Afghanistan? Did you see Chinese? Did you see Pakistanis? Did you see any sense of uh, of others that might be um, any signs of, of influence now. Um, do you mean just like regular people or regular people or just, or just footprints, just the sense of, Oh, well, that's interesting. I never, I never would have seen an Indian this here and now it's here, or there's more, much more Pakistanis. I'm hearing Urdu spoke a lot more around here or anything like that. Mm. I, I noticed, especially with the, the first sort of young Taliban that I met um, in Mazar who escorted um, escorted us to the Uzbek border, they were all playing, you know, they continued to send Jake, my photographer, selfies and pictures and they made slideshows of themselves and, and the, all the music was in Urdu. So um, it was very clear that, that that Pakistan influence was there. I didn't see a huge amount of foreigners, honestly, on the ground. Um, really, the only foreigners at that point that were coming in were journalists, and the only real journalists that were coming in were sort of coming in and out were from Europe. Yeah. Um, I didn't really see any other Americans, and, and it was mostly just, um, I guess, yeah, Europeans and, and some British that were kind of coming in and out. Um, so I didn't I didn't see a huge amount. I, and, again, I you know, I'd go to the military stores and, I would see or I would talk to them and ask them about who was coming in and they would sort of say, well, sometimes some Russians come in and sometimes some Chinese come in. But I think generally speaking, they were they were laying fairly low. But um, but I think yeah, the, the Pakistan influence is, is certainly a is certainly a big one. And again, going back to what I was saying when I was talking to a lot of the Taliban about their upbringing, you know, and to get to the yeah. point, well, where did you do your training? And they would obviously instructed um, by their leadership not to say Pakistan. And they would sort of look at me and they smile and they say, you know where I trained. <laughs> oh, I know where you trained. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it was sort of that 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 piece of the puzzle is is really quite, quite undeniable. I, I, I want to keep going with the foreign piece for a second. But I, I before I do, I, I just have to ask. Um, did you find talking to the Taliban or, or to Afghans in general, I, I've always found that they are amazing at speaking. And the only way I can think of phrase is they speak at right angles. So you ask mm-hmm. a question and then it, it comes at a right angle and you're like, oh, okay, well, let me recalibrate. Did you, it, 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 do you know what I'm talking about? Does that make any sense to you? Sure. Like uh, they're a little bit, uh, what's the word? Um, I don't have the word for it, but it would yeah, get definitely different. Um, I think, you know, as I say in Afghanistan, when I'm doing interviews, you find that they do kind of go on their own little bit of a poetic flow almost. Right. Um, yes, very poetic. Whereas contrast that to working somewhere like Iraq, 
where I find you have to be a lot more direct with your questions, you know, where it was sort of like, if you didn't ask a very direct question that you're going to get, like, what are you talking about? Kind of response. Whereas Afghans tend to be a little bit more flowery um, right. in their sort of responses and, and they're, they're storytellers. They, they all have, oh, 100%. Um, you know, incredible, incredible stories to tell. And, and, you know, and that is, that is just, you know, the Afghan people and, and, you know, interviewing Afghan men, it's just sort of funny. Um, we have a, a friend there, a journalist friend, and she's actually doing a book on Afghan men and flowers. So her whole book is about you know, wow. these Afghan men or even Taliban, and you see them and they're just sort of sitting with flowers, and it's this very contrasting and strange dynamic. But that is Afghanistan. You've got these very um, hardened fighters, but at the same time, all these gentle souls. So it's 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 a... It's just a fascinating place. It is a fast. And I, I wonder, you you probably have more insight into this than I do, but I wonder how much that's the remaining kind of Sufi influence before Wahhabism took over, mm-hmm. that that in, inherently poetic, colorful past that any Afghan just genetically inherits almost, you know, and, and they, it, no amount of ideology can strain that from them. Yeah, it's something... Yeah, something very special, and and someone some someone once told me, you know, for an Afghan, just you know, sitting by the water and, and staring into the mountains is is time well spent. You know, it's time not wasted. It's time it's time gained. Um, and I think they're they're so used to living their life really on that precipice of of continued wars that have been going on since yeah. the nineteen seventies. So that is time gained and and they have a very different relationship with with death and and with destruction and and i think for afghans you know each day sort of is is that blessing and and they're very much people that do live in the moment and that is um you know one of the beautiful lessons i've learned from my afghan friends is is just that appreciation for for each day well i think i think you've also made an articulate case for that tourism over terrorism uh, play in Afghanistan that if Afghanistan could just stabilize, the world would appreciate one of the true beauties um, that it has and that it's just been denied for so many years, mm-hmm. um, it, both geographically, topographically, uh, you know, the views, the the landscapes, but then also the people and the culture, um, the food and all that. And I actually wanted to ask mm-hmm. about the food. I mean, you're eating locally when you're out in the mountain towns and all that. How did that go? Yeah. Um, it was, I actually had a bit of a disaster before I went. So I had a dental implant in the back of my mouth that, um, wasn't done correctly. So unfortunately I can normally leave a carnivore and then suddenly (laughs) couldn't chew anything. Um, so I really lived in yogurt, which was definitely difficult when you go to the rural places where there is no refrigeration. Yeah. Um, so I sort of had to live on the Afghan bread a little bit, um, which is funny because when you go to the rural areas, they don't actually have flour. So they make it without flour and you have this really stringy stuff. Um, so it's different to the the bread that you get in the, in the cities and, and things. But yeah, eating locally. I mean, Afghans have amazing food, sort of amazing kebabs. Um, they're really big into their, you know, palau, which is the rice dish. And, and uh, it's just, yeah, it's and it's such a, it's such a valued experience, you know, sitting on that floor with the plastic mat um, and everybody sort of eating at once and the tea, endless tea. And I just, you know, that's something that that I think we miss a lot in the West is those meals together. And, and 
the idea of an Afghan ever sort of eating alone or eating standing up in the right. kitchen or it just it's not it just wouldn't happen because they they really value um, that family time and that meal time and and it's just such a you know beautiful experience even when you you sort of have very little and that's something I I loved was how you know something we really looked forward to was that that sense of togetherness and, and having that time and, and I. Yeah, I just I really loved that. And I I really wanted in in my time there to highlight the beauty of Afghanistan because I think it's been so lost in in the carnage and people don't realize it just is this one of the most aesthetically amazing countries yeah. on the planet and each province is is so different um and and just so rich in just natural beauty and I really wanted to highlight that. And ironically, you know, that also became um, fodder, you know, for, for people that, well, you know, wanted to kind of attack me, which you can never do anything right. But people that were like, well, how dare you um, show the beauty of the mountains when there is, you know, this and this right. and this happening. Right. So right. you kind of just have to take a step back and be like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. You all yeah. need to chill. You all <laughs> need to take a breath. Yeah. This is still Afghanistan, and you should be happy that it's not destroyed. And and that's another thing I know to say in comparison to somewhere like Iraq. Mm. It's not leveled to the ground. It's not, it's certainly there's destruction and elements of war, but it's it was a very different war that was fought there as opposed to somewhere like Mosul or, you know, the liberation of ISIS. So sure. Afghan still has its natural beauty and doesn't require the hundreds of millions of dollars for rebuilding. Um, and that's something that should make even the diaspora happy. But I found that, you know, nothing you could do, nothing you could report on, you know, was ever going to um, to satisfy everybody. And, and that's just, that's what journalism is. You just, you're going to piss a lot of people <laughs> off even when you're not trying. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. You, you can't win with that subject matter. Yeah. How good are you with gems? How good are you at discerning the value of gems? I see the, the pictures of you in there, and I was like, that is a, I wish I was better. So we went to uh, to Noristan, which is just, you know, crawling sure. with amazing gems, and, and we were going for a hike through the valley, and um, we had this sort of driver that we picked up from Kuna, and he was going through and just picking up all these treasures, and I was like, oh, my goodness. You know, we want to do that too. And so it would turn into a bit of a disaster. So we, uh, so Jake and I, my photographer ran back and we were like looking for gems. The next thing you know, we look up and they're dynamiting the, the cave above us. And so we're sort of just running because we're like, oh shit, you know, they're going <laughs> to, so, and so we're hiding underneath this rock. And I looked at Jake, I said, are we safe? He's like, not really. They're blasting <laughs> above us. And so finally we got the attention of these, you know, two young Afghans who were, who were blasting and, and, and they stopped and they said, come up, come up. So we climbed up this mountain and went into the cave. And it was really just incredible. They had this whole setup of their, um, you know, unofficial mining and then invited us back to, they, they live in this one room with about eight other Afghans and they're all just miners that are trying to, to find the gems. And so we went and spent some time with them in their little their little tiny hut. And, and they just, you know, would show us the, the most incredible um semi-precious stones that were there and and yet you know they take it to the markets and it's always someone else who makes all the money out of it but just you know beautiful and incredible and I I sort of bought a whole bunch of the raw emeralds um directly from them yeah or not from them I ended up buying them from a seller from Pangea um so that I could make my own sort of jewelry with it and and give them, you know, as a special gift to friends and things and, and really just the raw stone and to go and do what you kind of want with yeah. it to make mm-hmm. something else out of it. It's a, it's a shame that 
Afghanistan hasn't hasn't been able to tap into those resources or or build it in any formalized way, and that is because of the security situation. Yeah, so I, I remember um, the last time I really looked into it, uh, the Chinese, I think, when they cut their deal for the Mezinek mines in Mahamadaga and Logar, that they'd only recouped something like $7 million since 2007 in yeah. in minerals. And I, I, did you happen to go by there? Did you happen to go by? Yes, Mahamadaga? I went to Mezinek. Okay. So. Yeah. Um, yes, we went to Mazinac, and so basically in 2008, a Chinese state-owned company won the tender um, for that particular mine, a 30-year lease, um, you know, beat out Canadians, beat out the U.S., um, which, you know, you sort of have to kind of question the logic in, in all of that. But they, the part of the deal was that they were supposed to build roads and build bridges and do all this stuff around Mazinac. Um, to, you know, to be able to use the, those rights to extract. And there's just this copious amount of copper. I read somewhere, some estimate that, that put it over a trillion dollars worth of copper. And you have to remember when the US went into Afghanistan in 2001, there were no smartphones, there were no uh, electric cars, you know, copper didn't have the value um, that it has today. So it was probably something that was, was fairly disregarded, I think, in that sense, but but China was able to get this deal, but they weren't really able to develop it too much because of the security situation. And I think they decided that they weren't going to invest too much in, in building a lot of the roads and bridges and things just because there was a good chance they'd probably be blown up or that sure. they just didn't want to put their, their workers uh, at risk in that way. So they really only did a little bit of exploration and didn't do too much digging. But the quagmire with Mazinac is it's also just the archaeology that's there. I mean, you've just got these, these Buddhas and, and everything from the, just from, from and Zoroastrian temples. And, and you're looking at this is, you know, 3000 BC and, and the, the value of that archaeology that's there. And so there's sort of this the dilemma of like how much of that is going to be destroyed because some of it, so much of it hasn't been excavated. So how much of that is going to be destroyed in trying to extract the copper? And is there sort of a balance that can be struck or a way that copper can be extracted without destroying that? And, and I think that's something that the Taliban doesn't really know um, and that the Chinese company and themselves probably don't really know. And that's going to be, that's going to be sort of an issue for them going forward. But at the same time, I know the Taliban is really keen to build up that mining aspect because that's a huge revenue source for them if they are able to, to pull that off. So um, yeah. who was yeah. there when you went to Mezinek, who was there? Was it Taliban, Taliban. now guarding it? Taliban. Okay. Yeah. Was there any so, sign of the Chinese compound there or any of There wasn't. I did. Okay. I did see a tattered Chinese flag. That was about the most, you know, China yeah. element that I saw there. Um, they claim that the Chinese is not there, um, but I, you know, again, we we don't know. I'm sure that they definitely had a presence in the past. I know that they're back in talks with the Taliban to try to to reinvigorate that lease because that's going to be worth a lot to them. Um, but whether they can sort of secure that security situation, I think, is probably the big factor in all of that. And then the Taliban are, are pretty much going to rip up any agreement that the Chinese had with the previous Afghan government because they want to do things on their terms. Um, so, you know, that that may influence the percentages and, and how much, who's getting what kind of right. thing. But, were were but, you able to get up close to the archaeology there? Or was yes, the Taliban, it was, were, oh yeah. Did, and did you have a Taliban tour guide, like guiding you or was it, or was they like, yeah, just go ahead and walk around? I mean, the Taliban were, you know, they were, um, 
they were there kind of following us around. But okay. we, we walked around and, and did our own thing. And, and um, you know, I think they, you know, for a lot of them, you know, it was all very new to them too. So right. it was um, very bizarre seeing the Taliban, you know, with these Buddhas and, and you know, their, their guidance at that point was to, to take care of this. Um, which is obviously in a vast contrast to what happened in 2001 where Mullah Omar blew up the Buddhas in Bamiyan. And again, you know, that happened in, in early 2001. So this was going six years into the Taliban rule when they made that decision. And that's why it's unpredictable. You just never know what they're going to do. Right. Right. So right now the orders are let's protect um, the archaeology. And I went to Bamiyan as well. And, and it was, you know, the Taliban is taking selfies outside the Buddhas. And I'm like, you know, you blew that up, right? Um, but the way that they see it is, well, that was the orders then. And it wasn't a mistake because that's what Mullah Omar right. said. But now these are our orders and we're going to follow them. So, but again, it's just unpredictable. You don't know for how long they're actually going to protect these sites. And at what point, you know, they're going to be used. Essentially, that was for extortion. Mullah Omar wanted money um, and the international community wouldn't give him money. So he threatened to blow up the Buddhas, thinking that that might you know, provoke the uh, international community to giving him money to stop him doing it. And when that didn't happen, he went ahead and, and made good on his word. So it's just, um, yeah, that's that's sort of the, the Taliban mindset. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Um, I want to just for one last minute, just stay with the. Uh, minerals and the gem trade did you ever dev out kind of what the gem supply chain is because and like what exactly like who gets what and who's taking what off the top and what entities are involved with that did you get any insight into that yeah i think it's really just a multitude it's such a I mean, it's just, it's an unofficial kind of running. So basically you've got the people that that will extract the, the gems, they'll take it to the market. There'll be a middleman who's kind of then takes it and either resells it. A lot of the times it will go to Tajikistan to be sold or it will go to Dubai. Um, so it's just a whole bunch of different middlemen and a whole bunch of different enterprises involved. And that is both a combination of Taliban, regular Afghans, you know, normal kind of families, government. It's it's just an underground, unofficial kind of market of, of anyone who can kind of make a living. And and that's, um you know, again, what we see with the yep. drug trade as well. That's very much sure. a Taliban-dominated underground movement that, you know, is not going to end anytime soon. I'm, I'm a firm believer that to know a country, you have to know their, like, their, their kind of dark, their sl- the sleazy trades a little mm-hmm. bit, because then you start to understand what the mechanics are involved. Um, and I know you had a little bit of exposure to the drug trade in Kandahar. Um, what was? Did you see any changes in the supply chain, or what were you tracking as far as how that moves and who's involved in that and how that flows? Uh, so first, I actually went to Helmand. So first, I went to the narcotics ministry in Kabul, and I talked to this sort of new director, and I don't think any of them really had any understanding of sort of the industry and I would probe them with all sorts of technical questions about uh, narcotics movements and these are are the ministers and they would just look at me like I don't know Um, but there was very clear that they you know on paper they would say oh it's haram we're going to stop it and then I would 10 seconds later ask another question about like well have you ever as it, have you ever thought of legalizing opium? Have you ever thought of, of creating an industry out of it? Um, and then they would say, oh, yeah, we're going to do that. So it was sort of yeah. this very, like, weird sort of 
whatever. It was just very clear that this was such a huge revenue for them that they were not going to give it up. So when we went to, to Hellman and we went to, to Sangin and the poppy fields there, and it was sort of funny because on one hand, it's Haram, it's Haram, and, and we went to, um, and then all of a sudden this Taliban farmer gets in our car and he's like, oh, this, I'll take you to my poppy field. And it wasn't poppy season, but there were still evidently poppies there. And I was like, isn't this Haram? Like, why? So here you are, like, happy to, to show us around your poppy fields that you're clearly still cultivating. but yeah, at the same time, you're, you're telling me it's Aram. And, and when I started to dig deeper into it, what I kind of learned was that the Taliban philosophy really is don't sell it to other Afghans um, because they were sweeping up a lot of the drug addicts and, and putting them in jail. And, and But it's fine to go and sell it to the rest of the world. We don't really care what happens in Iran or we don't care how many other people may die from heroin overdoses, but just don't sell it to Afghans. But if you sell it abroad, you're good to go. So there's just too much money there for the Taliban to, to give that up. So on one hand, they're, they're trying to say that they're going to stop it. But on the other hand, it's very evident that it's just it's not going to stop anytime soon. Um, and I think that that farmers kind of repeat the same thing as well. Like, well, if we're told we have to stop, we have to stop and then we'll go to corn or we'll go to something else. But it's very clear to me the Taliban really has no um, no real desire to, to stop that industry. And they see the they profit in it. in Afghanistan. I mean, they see the profit in it, right? I mean, so wow. there, there is, I mean, they understand that it's a major economic driver for them, right? Yeah, and that sustained them for 20 years. Right. You know, really, that played the biggest part, I think, in, in financing the Taliban for, for that long. And I can't see, especially given their economic situation, I can't see that they're going to, to be willing to, to give that up um, theoretically, um, even though they are trying to say that, you know, it's outlawed, it's Iran, but it's just too much of a big, of a big cash cow for them. What about methamphetamines? I know there was a thriving trade um, when I left there in 2020, and it was, especially out west. Did you run into that? Did you have, see any traces of that out there? Well, I ran into it really only in the sense that when I went to the jails in Kandahar, that there were a lot of meth addicts in there. So um, I didn't see any specific meth operations, but it was very evident that that is a, that is a very prominent drug in Afghanistan, a relatively new drug uh, too. Yeah. But, but the, the levels of addiction in Afghanistan are, are really just harrowingly high um there were children that were addicted in these jails you know so often when i would ask them you know how you manage you know what happened they would say their father would tell them that they had to go and pick up the drug supply and so eventually the kids started um you know being exposed to the drugs sniffing the drugs taking the drugs and so it, you would see just in these families one person would get another person addicted and another person and then you were just down a down a really terrible slippery slope, and, and these were kids. Um, so you know it's, it's a heartbreaking, and there really wasn't. I know throughout the last decade or so that a lot of drug clinics did. A lot of NGOs came in and started drug clinics, but they really weren't sort of being used. And again, you have the stigma and the taboo, and it's very hard to to get to get anyone to sort of want to seek treatment at that point. So the Taliban, because it didn't really have the resources of, of clinics, they were just basically rounding up whatever drug addicts that they could and, and putting them in jails to effectively detox. 
Um, and then basically over after a couple of months, they would take them back to their families and, and put the responsibility on their families and say, now you're responsible. And if this person relapses, then you're going to jail too. So um, there was a little bit more of maybe of a family incentive to, um, to try to stop try to stop those relapse numbers, but it's difficult anywhere in the world. Sure. And with the Taliban, um, my impression of them was that there were really two and probably more than two, but for general purposes, two Taliban, the ones that were in Keta and the leadership and that had kind of gotten a little soft and could talk with the international community and the ones that were hard and, and, and still fighting in Afghanistan who were generally you know, lower ranking and, and trying to make their way up and trying to get to that cushy lifestyle. Now that governance has kind of been thrust upon them, um, do you see them as Machiavellian and really able to um, kind of put on a good front for the West or for the world or for the international community, whoever they're, they're, they, they want to court? Or do you think that... Um, for lack of a better phrase, that they're still kind of bumpkins and like, nope, they're going to make a hash of this. They're going to, they're going to mess this up. They're not going to be able to maintain consistency. So whatever's happening in Helmand or Kandahar is not going to be what's happening in Kunar. It's not going to be what's happening up in uh, Kunduz. You know, there's not going to be the consistency of governance of, of an actual nation state, and they're going to mess this up. What's your take on that? Right. Actually, to be honest, like I kind of found the opposite. What I found was that the Taliban the foot soldiers were very um, adamant about following orders. And so the second that an order from their supreme leader or from one of the, the ministers from Malia Yaqub or from Siraj Rakhani came down, they were very quick to implement it and follow it. So um, I'll give you one example. So they would go to the, the lakes in Bamiyan and there's these swan boats and so the Taliban's, because this was suddenly, you know, you, you see them everywhere at the theme parks and the, all this, this whole country suddenly opened up to them where they're no longer hiding yeah. in a mountain and they can do all these kind of, we call them FLTs, the fun-loving Taliban's, um, and they would go on these recreational things. And so there was these ridiculous, or a photographer we knew actually took a bunch of pictures and they looked absolutely ridiculous. They were on these swan boats and they had their, you know, AK-47s or whatever, and it just was comical. And so it went viral on the internet and the, everybody's sort of making fun of them going, here's the Taliban Coast Guard. Right, right. Um, and so they were very embarrassed. And so Mullah Yakub came down with orders and said, um, you know, if you are going to go on any of these rides and things, you are not to have your weapons on you. You have to, you know, hand them to the, the poor little Taliban who's sitting there cradling everybody's guns. Um, and so that they were straight away, you know, and we would try to catch out any of the Taliban's that were looked like ridiculous going on a Ferris wheel with their AK-47. But but we couldn't be because they were very firm about following orders. And I did notice that sort of just a lot um, in general that they that they did listen to the leadership. But now the problem I guess I foresee is the Taliban itself is is a is a breakoff of of the Mujahideen from the Soviet war. Sure. And that is an infighting thing. And then you see the see Daesh, which is also a break off of the Taliban itself as well by a disgruntled leader who then went and started his own faction. And so the question then becomes how much the leadership, how can the leadership stay um, unified to some degree? And then there are huge schisms in that. 
And so it's whose orders are they going to follow and how long can this glue stay together? Because this is just a movement that continues to fracture, yeah. continues yeah. to fracture. And, um, and that was something you saw a lot right in the beginning. Um, you know, you see this sort of the Hakani side of it and then you see the Kandaharis and they're, they're very much at odds. Um, they see things very differently. They have different allegiances. They have different views of Pakistan. They have different um, ideas of how they want to see the country. So um, someone like Barada, who was really the, the sort of face of the Taliban for a long time and right in the beginning, you barely see him anymore. He's been very much pushed to the side. Um, and really what I started to notice in my time there was, I guess, the influence of the Khanis. I think that is really um, at the end of the day, you've got this family that's incredibly dominant and, and Siraj, who's this sort of very shadowy figure that's running the Ministry right. of Interior mm-hmm. and how's his relationship with Mullah Yaqub, who is Mullah Omar's son, who's very young, and he's the Minister of Defence. And, and those two, they also see things very differently because, again, Mullah Yaqub is a Kandahari. So mm-hmm. they're seeing things very differently. And, and my question is, what, at what point does that glue become unstuck and that power struggle um, splinter the Taliban and splinter allegiances within those foot soldiers. And the other thing they have to worry about is, you know, again, this is this idea of they can't be seen to, to cater too much to what the international community wants. So the Taliban is desperate for international recognition. But when the international community comes in and says, well, we need you to do X, Y, Z, you know, before right. we can even begin to have these talks with you, the Taliban, as much as they want that recognition, also is playing this game of not wanting to seem like they're conceding too much because then they run the risk of their foot soldiers defecting to ISIS because the foot soldiers will then look sure. at that and say, but everything you taught us for 20 years was, was ending foreign influence and ending foreign occupation, and now you're not living up to your words, and now we're going to go and, and join something that's even more extreme. Um, so it's this really, it's a difficult situation they've got themselves into. So when we talk about all the potential belligerents and all the t- potential schisms that could happen in Afghanistan, the one notable exception, and I'm walking you right into one of your greatest controversies, the one exception that we don't hear, that I didn't hear you say anything about was the nerf, was the the Pancheries and Amal oh, yes. Saleh and yes. all the guys that are supposed to be fighting. So uh, talk a little bit about that and, and and you can even address what the what the quote unquote controversy was when you talked about your trip oh to Panchir, yeah. but um, because I think everybody should hear about that. And then I, I have a bunch of questions about, yeah, what your take is on the nerf uh, based on that. Yeah, I have, a, you know, always had a deep affection for, for Panjir. My first fixer um, was an incredible, he was one of uh, Ahmad Masood's guards and just an incredible Soviet mm-hmm. fighter. And so I've always, I've always just had a deep love for the, the Panjiris and their very independent spirit. Um, and, and wanting to kind of hold out the Taliban. So, yeah, so it, it became this very confusing sort of situation right in the beginning of September, just after the U.S. left. And, and of course, in Pangaea was the only province that the Taliban never controlled under its previous reign. It was really, um, it was the last kind of holdout. And, and it was very confusing because we were looking at social media, trying to understand who is controlling what? And, you know, I'm getting these NRF feeds and then I'm hearing different things and and, and nobody could really give me a consensus on, on what was happening. So I decided to that we needed to, to somehow be sort of smuggled in 
to Pangea to kind of get a, a feel for, well, just who is controlling it? Um, and, and people kept calling me and saying, we're going to send weapons, we're going to do this. And, right, and I was right. just like, let's let's just hold out and see yeah. see what is what is going on there. And so we went into Pangea right in the beginning of September, and it was very evident that the leadership had left, that um, that Masood, who I'm at Masood's son, who I met several years ago, that he was no longer there. Um, I'd lost contact with Salah, who was also no longer there, a lot of their leadership. Um, and I went, and there's eight districts in Pangea, and we went through all eight, and it was very clear to me that the Taliban had full control of each one of those eight districts. And that's not to say that fighting wasn't happening in the mountains because I, I still think there were some skirmishes and, and we'd be sitting there and you'd just see um, Pangeris coming down and surrendering. They would come down, they would go, usually what happened was the Taliban would send some elders up into the mountains where a lot of them had fled to during that intense period of fighting. And the you'd just see the Pangeris coming down the mountain, they would hand over their weapons um, and the Taliban would sort of give them this letter and basically say, you're free to go once you have this letter, um, but they would say that if, if they were up there and, and they weren't going to surrender, then they would just shoot them or that's where you would sort of see the conflict. But it was very evident that there wasn't, there was, Taliban had full control of, of each of those eight districts. Um, and there's sort of this one main road that runs through Pangea. I saw very little damage which I guess indicated that there really wasn't, at least in that main area, that there wasn't really any fighting that had happened there because there just there wasn't any damage. Um, I think for the time that I was there, I heard two rockets, which yeah. is not a lot for a place yeah. that you're seeing on social media that's sure. supposedly completely still at war. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it was just it was very clear to me that that was that the, you didn't see sort of too many of the NRF. And a lot of the, the guys that I knew from Pangea, the, the guys that were in their 20s and 30s, had all left and gone to France. And so I was like, well, you're kind of the able-bodied men here. Yeah. Why did you leave? And be, you know, you do have a lot of these old guys, Mujahideen, that, that fought the Soviets that are probably still out there fighting, but they're 60 plus years old now. And they really just have their AK-47 and, and they're up against the Taliban with all this American military might and, and guns and, and tanks and, and that kind of thing. But really at the end of the day, there just there wasn't a huge amount of, of fighting and destruction um, when I was there. And so yeah, and just sort of just trying to simply report what I saw with my own eyes. Um, I really yeah, ignited the wrath of, of people that were just like, how dare you, there's a genocide. And and how dare you, you know, sort of like, well, A, you're not here. Where are you? Right. Um, and I was tracking a lot of this stuff to figure out where it was coming from. And a lot of it was coming from that sort of that area in France or from, uh, from the diaspora. And I think people wanted to believe, they wanted to hold on to this belief that there was this, you know, we all love this story of the, the rebels and the holdout and the, the people that are fighting the Taliban. And, and it was a great story for the American media to kind of latch on to. But in reality, it was just, it was incredibly overblown. And, and you know, just in reporting that, you do get, um, you know, people that just that don't want to hear the truth. And, and that um, is, is the way it's going to be. You can be there on the ground. You can be reporting everything you see and do, and you'll still find people that are going to argue with you or telling you you're wrong sure. or telling you you're on a Taliban tour or whatever it may be right. that they can right. argue against, which just wasn't accurate. Um, and so that's that it was really frustrating for me because as someone who who wanted to report just what I could see and, and to be there on the ground um, and then to sort of have all these people that were arguing with you and telling you that what you were seeing was not correct. 
when they were 5,000 miles away, um, it was just, it was just heartening. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, and there was yeah, no one else. Just get through that. There was no other Western reporter or no other reporter in general that was out there reporting on this. There was no one else that was actually boots on ground out there. Was there that you know of? Uh, there, I mean, there were, there were some other journalists. I know that a couple of weeks after we went into Tapanjia, um, I think the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal also went in a few weeks That's later right. and basically reported the same thing that I'd, I'd reported several weeks earlier. And so a little bit of vindication. But yeah. um, but again, you know, that was But when they went in, it was it was very clear that at that point, you know, the Taliban did control Pangea. But when I went in, it was still this idea that, right. that somehow there was a holdout. And when it became very clear that it, it, there just wasn't a holdout, yeah. um, that it it sort of yeah it, it certainly was it was the rap so your your reporting um was heartbreaking to me when i read it because and it made me incredibly angry not at you but just at, at, at the fact that you had actually been there seen this and that everything we were hearing and so many of our hopes and dreams and things that we were trying to um work towards or steer people towards um, especially for some of the Afghans that we knew that were there were not going to happen and were just not true. And we're, and there was nothing there. And it was incredibly uh, demoralizing again, no ding on you at all. It's yeah. your, and, and in fact, exactly the opposite. It was, I mean, thank God you were telling people what was happening there um, or not happening as the case might be. Um, but so demoralizing. And one of the things that I swallowed kit and caboodle um was the propaganda about the um pakistani air force and pakistani infantry uh being on the ground um now i know that the isi chief was the first foreign official to visit kabul under the taliban i uh, i think steve cole's books on you know uh, afghanistan have you know illuminated this past everyone's satisfaction. So I, I, you know, I think the ties between Pakistan and the Taliban are pretty well established at this point, but as to whether or not Pakistan actually had to deploy troops on the ground to help defeat the ANA or ANASOC, um, seems like that might have been overblown. Did you see anything that would confirm that any Pakistani military influence was on the ground that helped push out ANASOC or defeat them or cause them to lose quicker than they otherwise would have? I didn't see any evidence of that. Um, and, you know, that was something I really looked for in in, in Pangaea as well, because that's what everybody was reporting and saying that Pakistani yeah. troops are there. And I didn't I didn't see any evidence of that. And again, what I found when I was really digging into this sort of disinformation, so to speak, was, well, first of all, a lot of it was coming from India. And so right. what I really realized was that Pangaea had become this proxy war between Pakistan and India, and both sides were feeding out different information about what was happening, um, when in reality, quite frankly, the Taliban didn't need Pakistan to be there. At that point, there were so many troops. I mean, the, the Taliban just, just lathered, they were just lathered that place um, with their fighters, and they brought in uh, fighters from from all over. I was talking to fighters from um, Kandahar. I was talking to fighters from just all different every province you can imagine was sort of there. And they would they would every few days swap out the troops and, and bring someone from Pakistan or, or bring different people in. And so I don't I don't even think the Taliban needed Pakistan to be there um, at that point. Yeah, again, it just you were looking at news clips of of supposedly Pakistani drones flying over. 
that people proved were a video game and, and right. or they were using footage from, from US forces training in Arizona. So it just became this clear that it was just this sort of hub of disinformation that was going on that was really hard to filter through. Um, and I don't... Yeah, I didn't. I didn't see evidence of that. Not to say that it didn't happen. I just didn't didn't see it uh, personally. And quite frankly, I just I don't think the Taliban at that point even needed it because they they had enough troops and they had a huge arsenal of American weapons. So I don't think that they they needed um, any more than that to to be able to to secure a defeat of that province. Is the story of the collapse of Afghanistan? one of the leadership just leaving? Is that really the bottom line? The leadership leaves and, and the whole tent collapsed? I think that's a huge part of it. And, and I've been I've been beating this drum for years. And I still say, and I am convinced the more that I talk to just regular Afghans, the levels of corruption um, within yeah. the, the Afghan government that the US supported were just were so heartbreakingly high and right from the beginning. And, and there was never any accountability. There was never... Um, any sort of real concerted effort to stop it from happening. And I say that, that really signaled the defeat. That enabled the Taliban to come back to power because you had you had these so many corruption on just every level and that weakened the system. So you had the money and I tell the Afghans, I take this personally because that was my money. As a US taxpayer, my money was supposed to go to the Afghan people and it didn't. It went to your Rolls Royce. And so I just I, I, I was very angry about it because I felt that it was something that the U.S. could have or should have addressed very early on. And it sort of it looked at it as like a secondary problem instead of a very fundamental problem that absolutely rotted every aspect, whether it was the military and the, on paper, 300,000 ghost soldiers. But in reality, right. 100,000, right. right. I mean, not enough to hold out the Taliban, clearly, but yet we didn't take that seriously. Um, and then also just in, in the dissatisfaction regular Afghans would have, you know, if you have to pay a bribe to get basic stuff done every day, to get through a checkpoint, to get uh, your ID card, to get, you know, whatever it may be, if you're constantly having to pay someone off and you're a poor farmer, you're going to get pissed off enough that you're going to, to not necessarily ideologically align with the Taliban, but you're going to say, well, these people are going to fight against this corruption. Make the trains so run on I'm time. I'm going to join them. Yeah, 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 that's right. And and again, that goes right back to that was Mullah Omar. That's how he started the Taliban, because that was in 1994. And that was sort of during the Civil War when you were seeing, again, these different sides, the corruption, people fighting, people looting, people doing all these things. And he went to this little mosque in, in Kandahar and said, we're going to rise up and we're going to stop this from happening. We're going to be just. And you, we can argue all day about whether, you know, that <laughs> right. they not corrupt themselves, right. but that was the ideology. Um, and so that still sort of resonated with the Taliban and they would look at, at the Afghan government and, and say, well, you know, we're, we're not going to be like that. And they were able to really recruit people that way. But I just think the Afghan government, you, you lost the ability to trust. I mean, the number of people that I know that I have known for years in Afghanistan that came out and were like, oh, yeah, I've been Taliban for 10 years. I've been Taliban for 20 years. Um, my family's Taliban. And yet these were people that were partying with us. These were people that were um, holding government positions, that were taking money from, from the United States. And yet they were Taliban the whole time. So just the level of. of Do you think they were? Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Did you think they were? Yeah. 
Do you think they were? Do you think that they're, they're going, hey, I'm covering my tracks and saying, yeah, I was um, Taliban the whole time? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a combination, you know, okay. potentially of both of that. If people I'm just curious, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but definitely I think a lot of them were Taliban to the core. Or um, Taliban sympathetic, Taliban curious. Yeah, or maybe. at least, yeah, you know, yeah. they, they sympathize with the Taliban. So I, I think it's definitely a combination. But just that sort of failure to address corruption, I just think that was the biggest mistake. And if the U.S., is ever going to go into another country the way that we went into Afghanistan and Iraq? I, I just, I would hope that something like that is is a, a paramount priority because that is that is what the Taliban really capitalized on. And these talks, so the Taliban were really for a year before the collapse, they were going into and, and we know that they already had shadow governments in, in most provinces, but they were going and, and talking to commanders. They were converting Afghan commanders. They were converting local leaders. They were you're giving them, you know, an out. We'll protect your family. We'll, um, we'll, you know, let you leave. We'll let you, you know, be safe. But you've got to sort of support us underground. And so yeah. it just is baffling to me. I guess the failure to to really recognize the extent to which that was happening. And we keep talking about, well, the Taliban controlled 70 percent of the country for years. But why? Why were they able to control that? That is because they had that manipulation over the local population and the local leaderships that were supposed to be on the side of, of the U.S. And, and of the Afghans that they just never really were. So, um, yeah, that was sort of a heartbreaking thing because I just it was so it was so clear to, I think, a lot of us. And then and how it all ended um, it was it was just sort of heartbreaking because it's something I think that was preventable. Yeah, I I agree. I want to bounce my theory off you and tell me tell me what you think of this, because I agree with you that the corruption. I think you identify it perfectly that uh, how big an obstacle that was to the continued success in Afghanistan. What I see as the main driver of the corruption is the United States's ambivalence about staying in Afghanistan. This is my theory that if we had said instead of Obama coming out and saying, hey, we need to we're going to the same speech that he announces the surge. He also announces, hey, we're going to be leaving, though. We're going to start pulling back troops in three years that we always kept saying we're not sticking around here. And I don't care if you're a police force trying to clean up projects or if you're the United States and Afghanistan, you cannot operate and let the enemy know what your timetable is that way. And I think for a country that's as highly leveraged as Afghanistan to always have the sort of Damocles hanging over their head, knowing that that clock is ticking and the United States is looking to save face and get out at any, at any potential moment only fuels the corruption because now everybody goes, the clock's ticking. I only got maybe a year left that I can make money and get to Dubai. And so, yeah, I'm going to be skimming off the top. Yeah. I'm going to be cooking the books because this gravy train is leaving. Whereas if we had said from the get-go, either never announced a timeline for withdrawal or conditions for withdrawal, or actually come out and proactively announce, we will be here for a hundred years. And so get used to it. We're going to be here. We are staying and we're locking this thing down. My, again, it's a theory. I wonder if everyone would have made different calculations and gone. And, and once we were starting to, once we took back Hellman and once we started to move some people out 10, 12 years ago, people would have gone, you know, it's not worth it to go back because the United States isn't going to be leaving. Afghanistan is going, they're trying to make Afghanistan the new Germany post-World War II uh, or Japan post-World War II. And we're just, we're not going to, we're not going to deal with it. 
Do you think that would have helped corruption or do you think I'm smoking the wrong stuff? I certainly think it could have played a big part. I think the corruption was just incredibly endemic. People were grabbing at whatever they possibly could at whatever time. Um, But I think in overall strategy, it's certainly a mistake to be announcing timelines. I think everything should always be condition-based, not timeline-based. And you certainly shouldn't be telling the enemy when you were planning to leave. And and in 2014, it's really, that's what the Taliban did. They were like, oh, cool, they're leaving, you know, a huge amount of troops leaving the end of the year. It's going to go chill in the mountains and, you know, hang out and and just kind of lay low for a little bit. And the second they're gone, we're, we're back at it. And that's uh, that was a huge problem, and that's when you really saw violence just go from high to exceptionally yeah, high. Yeah. Um, and so the Taliban took advantage of that, and they went in really for the kill. And they were playing the long game from the beginning. They weren't, um, you know, they weren't playing on a timeline. They were going to stick it out for however long. And, and even if you told them a hundred years, they probably would have stuck it out for. Yeah, yeah, years maybe, too. maybe so. But, that's yeah. right. Yeah, maybe. Um, but but I certainly think. You know, and it's again, you have this, it's a challenge, I think, for, for any commander in chief um, to, to know what the best approach is, because at the same time, you know, we have this sort of push in the US for, for transparency uh, with the government, for um, being able to be, you know, privy to every decision that the government's making. Sure. But when it comes to war, it's just not, it's just not the best tactic to, to make. And of course, I'm someone who's all about government transparency, but I also think that there are things that, that we don't always need to know. Um, and, and certainly, you know, withdrawing troops and things like that in, in that particular situation are probably things that it's not going to behoove us incredibly to have to know that, okay, the U.S. is going to pull out 5,032 troops in six months' time. Right. Um, so I think, you know, the Taliban knows yeah. that and it's going to play that game. And um, But, yeah, back to your point, the corruption I certainly think escalated in that in that particular period of time. And, and even just... Days before the fall, um, Afghans were telling me that that were working in neighbouring uh, embassies, that ambassadors and things were just were having millions and millions of dollars transferred to them and were putting their family on um, extraction yeah. lists as opposed to embassy staff. And so you just sort of saw that right down to to the very end as sort of this desperation to to cash in on, on whatever they could. And and when you when you go that way, you're no longer fighting for your country. You're you're yep. you're fighting for yourself. Yeah. Yep. And for the Afghan forces, you know, and it, it's sort of hard to say how much are you willing to fight for a country that doesn't fight for you? And it became very clear that the government did not have the back of these Afghan soldiers and it and just the number of them, and it really is something that, that broke my heart and something I, I still think about a lot in, in, you know, at night and lying in bed and I'm thinking these poor Afghan soldiers that lost their lives, you know, these 18-year-old little cadets that, that really didn't have any other opportunity in life but to go and to join the ANA yeah. and died fighting. And there's just so many of them, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands. They won't even release exact figures because they're just yeah. so demoralising and so high. And I just think, you know, what for what? Because your government really, it was it was interested in, in padding its own wallet. It was never interested in really um, respecting you as a as a fighter, as a soldier. And and I know it's never the right thing to, to run away from combat, but at the same time, I also don't kind of blame them because it became very clear that they weren't going to win. So you can go out there and die, 
but your country is still going to get taken over by the Taliban, or you can run away and have it have maybe a, a meager chance at, at life. And I know that I'm sure for you, especially as a warfighter, that's a hard thing to to grapple with. But at the same time, the government just did not have their backs, and so right. it's hard for you to, to kind of blame them too much for making that decision because they were never going to win and they could have sacrificed their life doing it at the end, but it wasn't going to make any difference to what was going to happen to their country. Um, but, you know, that that was another thing that was bizarre to me too was you just would see toward those last few days, you would see these soldiers just leaving their bases and a couple of them that I knew and I, I would text them and be like, are you okay? What are you doing? Oh, we left. And and this was before the, the fall, and I just thought, we left. It's not really how it works. But then when I sort of started to see um, the quagmire that it was in and that it really was a lost cause, it was hard for me to, to kind of blame them too much for that. And so I did find it very heartbreaking when President Biden sort of got up there and said, these people ran away. And I thought there really wasn't any choice for them at that point. They'd been sold out by their leadership. The commanders, I know because I was in Mazar, the commander that had just been appointed, I think it was a week earlier by Ghani, had already struck a deal with the Taliban and he, yeah. he left and taken his family out. But nobody told the soldiers on the ground. You know, yeah. some of them I knew, the commandos, who were incredible. Yeah. It was 4 o'clock that afternoon. That was a Saturday. 4 o'clock that afternoon, they were still out on a front line fighting. And, and one of them, a good friend of mine, Safi, his three bodyguards were killed. He really believed and he was someone who really believed in fighting for his country and believed Mazar yeah. was never going to fall. And then at four o'clock that afternoon, he gets a call and says, well, Dostum left, the commander left, everybody's gone. So, you know, you can either run away or you can hang out and stay like your bodyguards and end up like that. And of course he's going to run. And, and, and it just, yeah, I found, I found it to be very heartbreaking how quickly they were all sold out. I know you have to run, so I don't want to. I'm, I'm not going to ask the 20 deep follow-up questions that I'd love to ask you, but we'll 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 have you on another time. Um, just in, in closing, I would I just if you can, what are your expectations for your return trip to Afghanistan? Um, well, what one thing I really did notice toward the end of my trip was that they were becoming a lot more authoritarian. So in the beginning, it was this very bizarre, like, free-for-all um, where you would just walk up to a ministry and be like, I want to go and talk to Khalil Haqqani right now. And they'd be like, okay, you know, or whoever it may be. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember just not walking up to a suicide bombing school and knocking on the door and, and they're like, who are you? And I said, I'm a journalist. I want to come in and, and do a story. And they were like, one second. Okay. All right. Come in. Um, so it was this sort of very free access that we were able to get. And then as time went on, you started to see that change. You started to see um, that they were becoming a lot more concerned. Um, I would go outside and suddenly I was being stopped by intelligence all the time. And who are you and mm-hmm. what are you doing? And I don't think so. And, and, um, and you just felt it felt, it started to feel very different. Um, and so, and I even saw Taliban stopping other Taliban. So you'd be at a checkpoint and the Taliban would stop the Taliban coming through and be like, you need to join the police or the military and get out of that Afghan dress. And they're trying to be kind of formalized here. So I do expect to see, um, a country that's a lot more authoritarian than perhaps it was as the Taliban was sort of finding its feet. 
Um, I certainly expect to probably be harassed a lot more about why I was there and what I'm doing, um, which is something you, you noticed a lot more. And, of course, the humanitarian situation there is, is really just heartbreaking. And it's winter there at the moment and people just don't have food. They don't have um, shelter. It's, it's an absolute disaster that's probably going to claim more Afghan lives than the last 10 years of the war. And again, that can come down to very poor uh, economic planning by the US in, in pulling out. But also we created this sort of artificial economy, so to speak, where 80% or more of the population were either employed by the government, by an NGO, by a contractor, by some sort of foreign entity. And that disappeared overnight. It literally just disappeared. So suddenly you're an entire economy, your entire aid, your entire employment structure, it's all just gone. Um, So I think, you know, that's that's obviously a heartbreaking thing. And, And you can't really support Afghan people. I know when I was there, just friends of mine were trying to send me Western Union and I yeah. couldn't even get it because yeah. there wasn't there wasn't enough cash. So I'd go to Western Union, I'd line up, I'd finally get to the front, they'd be like, oh, we ran out of cash. And even if they had the cash, we were only allowed to withdraw $200 right. a week maximum, which, um, you know, people would spend a week lining up to get that $200 and then they'd be back at it. And these are people that should be out there trying to find work and trying to to, um, and then people wonder well, why a lot of the Afghan soldiers that the U.S. trained are going back to join the Taliban now. That is because that is their only possible um, opportunity to get some sort of uh, employment money. So um, the Taliban, in a way, kind of benefits from that, uh, so to speak. But the you know the level of malnutrition, the it just really was heartbreaking toward the end, and, and not being able to to help people was something yeah. that I really personally struggled with a lot because. Um, you know, I wanted to help and and I just, I couldn't. There was just yeah. not really a physical way of doing that. And so, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm kind of scared to see um, what I'll find in that way. I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't think excited is the right word, um, but I, I look forward to hearing and seeing what you find over there. I feel like, and if you know better, by all means say so, but I feel like you're the only journalist that's going over to kind of keep tabs on the situation in Afghanistan in an in-depth and ongoing basis. It isn't just outsourcing it to some, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know freelancer um, that's already in Afghanistan that you're actually doing the digging and um, uh, good for you. Uh, I, I really look forward to seeing it because at this point, I feel like you are just about the only window into Afghanistan that most of us have. So um, good for you. And um, you got a lot of people rooting for you here. Thank you. Well, the U.S. has invested so much blood and treasure into that country. It would be, it would just be a shame to to completely um, you know, forget about it and, and move on as as we do so often in the media when it's no longer in the headlines, when it's no longer the sexy story that it was in August. Um, you know, for me as a as a journalist, I I feel that that. That's just something we have to be committed to. And, and just because the U.S. leaves a country doesn't mean that it, it has to disappear from the news or that we can no longer tell the stories of the Afghan people because they matter. And they matter to a lot of Americans who have sacrificed a lot for that country. And I think um, keeping, you know, just, just the daily life of people is, is so important. And, and I always say these are people who will never see justice often for what was done to them in whatever respect. However, you know, they've been caught in, in crossfire of conflict and, and no one's ever going to come and, and hand them a retribution or they'll never 
go to the necessarily international criminal court or something, but but in telling their stories, that is a form of justice because in a way it's it's just not forgetting them and, and the fact that that people still care and are still willing to sort of read their stories and tell their stories, that's very important to them. And so that's the way that I sort of see how I, I, I see my role as a journalist in, in just in being a storyteller and, and not not forgetting these people because you know they do matter to a lot of us. And and I uh, my theory and I hope I'm wrong, but I think Afghanistan will continue to mean an awful lot to America because we know what happened the last time we took our eye off Afghanistan, um, and that is a country, in my opinion, that requires some serious adult supervision. And the fact that we have willfully blinded ourselves to it, um, I think you are doing a lot to rectify that, and about the only person doing a lot to rectify it. So it means a lot, and um, and I think everyone would stand to benefit from listening to you and following you and seeing what you're what you're up to and what you're discovering over there. Thank you. I really appreciate the support. And come back and see us, okay? I want to hear how I'd things come. I'd love to. Be an honor. That'd be great. All right, Holly, we'll talk to you down the road. Thank you. That was Holly McKay's profile in Havoc. Hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, I wish her safe travels. Obviously, that's a, she's, you know, does nothing if not carve out a dangerous path for herself. Um, but man, is she... Um, doing some great work and providing some, a window into some areas that, you know, most people just don't pay attention to. And certainly I can't wait to get her back on the show. Um, talk more about Afghanistan and hear what else she is up to. You can find out everything you want to know about Holly and track all of her movements, read all of her writing at hollymckay.com. That's H O L L I E M C K A Y com hollymckay.com if you look up holly mckay on instagram you can follow her on instagram and you can also check out her substack by going to her website and you will see the links to subscribe to her substack uh writing as well all of that is going to be in the show notes as well so wherever you're listening to this podcast just scroll down you will see the show notes pop up and you can click on the links there to see what she's up to I mentioned our first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation, at the top of the episode, but we are co-sponsored by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which, full disclosure, is my nonprofit. The Veterans Repertory Theater exists to produce veteran playwrights and to celebrate veterans in the arts. It is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. Uh, Vet Rep produces the Savage Wonder podcast, which I also host. It produces the Savage Wonder literary blog. also produces the Write Loud events on Instagram Live. Um, and that's in addition, of course, to the live performances, which will start back up in April. Um, but Vet Rep is a, uh, a busy hub. So the best way to stay on top of what's going on at the Veterans Repertory Theater is to go to vetrep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P dot org vetrep.org again vetrep.org and you will see tabs for what's playing now you'll see how to submit your work to vetrep uh you'll see all the contact information and tons and tons of pictures so thank you both the second mission foundation and to the veterans repertory theater for your sponsorship of this episode and as always thanks to our producer mike neal i'm christopher paul meyer my thanks again to holly mckay and we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.